Well, good morning, church. It's great to see all of you. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take it and open up to your Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of Haggai this morning. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. And uh, feel free to use your table of contents if that's helpful to find where Haggai is. It's a small Old Testament book, so it's very easy to just pass over. But if you'll look up that page number, uh, that will help you to get to the right place. Last Sunday night was the Super Bowl, uh, which means that Monday morning started uh, what is the best season of the year, baseball season. And uh, we are a baseball family. And uh, we, in baseball, we always teach your kids... Uh, if you want to you be successful in baseball, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. You've heard that one, right? So if you're batting, you can't hit it if you can't see it. So you've got to keep your eye on the ball. If you're fielding and a, a, a ball is hit to you, it's coming in fast. If you get distracted or lose focus in that moment, then you'll either miss the ball entirely or maybe you'll get hit with the ball. I was playing uh, on a church softball league a few years ago, which, by the way, church softball leagues are pretty vicious. Can I get a, uh, can I get a witness? And um, I remember I was playing shortstop. The ball was hit to me. It was smoked. And uh, I thought I had it. And I took my eyes off the ball just for a split second to see where the runner was on his way to first. And in that split second of just taking my focus off of where it needed to be in that moment, I got the stitches of that softball just absolutely tattooed onto my forearm. You've got to pay attention in the game to what is most important in that moment without losing focus, without getting distracted. When we come to Haggai chapter 2... There's a sense in which the people of God have taken their eyes off the ball. They have lost focus. They've gotten distracted from what God had called them to do. To give you a little bit of the context of what's happening in Haggai, the people of God have been in exile in Babylon because of their rebellion. And yet God has graciously brought them back into the land. Okay, that's the, the period of history that we land when we come to, to, to the book of Haggai. The people have been in exile. God has graciously brought them back to Israel, stuck them in the land of blessing, and called them to begin rebuilding. And that's exactly what they begin to do. With great enthusiasm and vigor, the people of God begin to rebuild Jerusalem and uh, most importantly, they begin to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem until they begin to get discouraged and intimidated and fearful because the inhabitants of the land, whenever they were in exile, the inhabitants of the land who are still there don't like the fact that the Israelites are coming back and rebuilding. And so they begin to attack them and discourage them and intimidate them. And through, through fear and intimidation, the Israelites even though they had made a good start of prioritizing God's will and God's way, they'd made a good start of being busy about what God had called them to do. Because of this intimidation of the surrounding people, they take their eyes off the ball, they lose focus, they get distracted, and they stop working on the temple at all. And in fact, the temple goes unkept and unbuilt for 16 years. So people, enthusiastic at the beginning, they come out of exile back to the land, they're excited to rebuild, they make a good start of it. And fast forward 16 years, the, the house of God now lies in ruin and rubble because the people of God have neglected the work of God. The people of God have been distracted with other things. Now, meanwhile, 
while they've left the house of God neglected, they've been spending their time building up their own houses, investing in where they live. And in fact, they, they rebuild their homes and then they start making their homes very comfortable and very luxurious. Haggai chapter one says that they have paneled houses. Now that may not appeal to our modern aesthetic to have a paneled house, but in that day, that was luxurious. That was elegant. And the picture that we get in Haggai chapter one is that God's house over here, God's work is in ruin and rubble. Meanwhile, the people's houses have been built up and they're nice and they're luxurious and they're comfortable. And what you see with the people of God when you come to the book of Haggai is that the people of God have been focused on all of the wrong things. They have taken their eye off the ball. They've gotten distracted by lesser things. And <clears throat> they are like the churches of Revelation. They have become spiritually lukewarm. They've become spiritually complacent. They've been comfortable with the idea that as long as their house was taken care of, it didn't really matter what God's work was doing. And so God, who loves his people too much to leave them that way, sends a prophet by the name of Haggai. And Haggai comes in Haggai chapter 1. He brings a rebuke to the people. He just says, think about what you've been doing. Look at what you've been doing. You've been pouring, investing in yourselves and your own comfort, and you've been neglecting the work of God, and that has not turned out well for you. God has sent a drought, and He's withheld the rain, and you've not experienced a life of flourishing because you've been disobedient to Him. You can never expect to be disobedient and experience the blessing of God on your life. And so Haggai comes and says, get busy doing what God called you to do. That's the message of Haggai 1. He says, think about what you've been doing. And get busy doing what God has called you to do, which is what the people begin to do. And that's where we pick up in Haggai chapter 2. The people have heard this rebuke, and unlike many other prophets where they hear the words of the prophets and they ignore them, in Haggai, they actually listen to the words of Haggai, and they repent, and they begin to rebuild the temple. And that's where we pick up Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. I want you to notice it says, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Now, everybody knows what the 21st day of the seventh month is, right? No one knows it? I had to look it up, okay? You can write in the margins of your Bible, this is October, uh, October 17th, okay? October 17th. Chapter 2 and verse 1 is happening on October 17th. Just hold that there in your mind for a moment. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, okay? You know what day that is, right? Right in the margin of your Bible, August 29th, okay? And just hold that in your mind for a moment. Come to chapter 1, look at verses 14 and 15, okay? I promise I'm going somewhere with this, just trust me for a second. It says, they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Okay, you can write in your margins, September 21st. So let's put this together. 16 years of neglect. God sends a prophet with a message on August 29th. Fast forward to September, what did I say? September 21st. Nearly a month later, the people start working to rebuild the temple. Okay, because it takes a little while to organize yourself, right? So they've heard the message. They obey God. It takes them nearly a month to get started on the work. And then fast forward a little bit between chapter 1 and verse 15 and chapter 2 and verse 1, 
I told you chapter 2 verse 1 is October what? 17th. So we've had nearly another month go by. Okay, everybody tracking with me so far? You say, well, why does any of this matter? Well, here's why it matters. When the people start the work in September, all the way to October, they have spent nearly a month working to rebuild the temple, right? They've let it be neglected for 16 years. Haggai tells them to start rebuilding. They obey. They start work. Week number one passes. Week number two passes. Week number three passes. And they look around and they've not made much progress, you say, Pastor, how do you know they haven't made much progress? Here's how I know. Because chapter 2, verse 1 says this happened in the seventh month. Every word in the Bible is important. It's not accidental that Haggai says this happens in month 7. Here's why month 7 is significant. There's two, two reasons it's significant. Number one, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was the month that the Israelites celebrated all of their big festivals. And the biggest that they celebrated in this month was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And during that festival, no major work was allowed. So think about it. They've been working for nearly a month, but the month that they happen to be working in is a month where they're not allowed to do a lot of work. So they haven't made much progress. They've spent several weeks at this task, but they don't have much to show for it. The second reason that that seventh month is important is because if you go backwards in Israel's history, 400 years in the seventh month, that was when Solomon dedicated the first temple. And the first temple was pretty special. First temple was beautiful. It was glorious. I'll talk about it here in a moment. But the first temple Solomon dedicates in the seventh month. Here you fast forward to Haggai chapter 2. They are in the seventh month. They've been working for nearly a month. They've not made very much progress. Meanwhile, they're reminded of what happened in their history 400 years before when Solomon dedicated the first temple, and it was beautiful, and it was glorious. And so when you come to chapter 2 and verse 1, we find the people of God discouraged. They are discouraged because of the lack of progress that they have made in the previous month of working. And so, notice in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Haggai comes and he brings a second message. Okay, message 1, Haggai chapter 1, get busy building the temple. They spend nearly a month doing that. They've not made much progress. They're discouraged. And so, now Haggai brings a second message, and this is, this is the message. He surfaces a problem in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, that's October 17th, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Verse 3, Haggai is going to ask a rhetorical question. Who is left among you who saw this house, speaking of the temple, who saw this house in its former glory? He's inviting them to remember what Solomon's temple was like. There would have been some people standing there who may have remembered prior to the exile what the first temple was like in all of its beauty and glory. So he's looking at this crowd now standing in the ruin and the rubble, and he says, who among you can remember how glorious this house used to be? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing 
in comparison? What a piercing question. Haggai is merely voicing what would have been on the hearts and the minds of the people. Compared to the glory of Solomon's temple, doesn't this present work amount to nothing? I mean, if you were an Israelite standing amidst the ruins and the wreckage of this present temple that you're trying to rebuild, and you've spent nearly a month working on it, but you've not made much progress, no major work has been done, and you just feel like this is not glorious. This is nothing like it used to be. That kind of sounds like some churches today. I remember the good old days. This is nothing like that. I remember the former glory of the house. I remember what God's temple used to be like, but here we are standing in the rubble of the temple as it presently is. This is nothing like it used to be. The past was so much better. So the mood of Haggai chapter 2, listen, if the mood of Haggai 1 is spiritual complacency, the mood of Haggai 2 is spiritual despondency. It is discouragement. There's this sense that the people have started to rebuild, they've spent nearly a month, they've not made much progress, and now they're just standing looking around and saying, this is nothing like the old days. I remember how glorious it was. You know, Solomon's temple really was glorious. It was beautiful. In fact, if you want to uh, read this afternoon, 1 Kings 6 through 8, you can read about Solomon's temple and what it was like. You can see a picture here on the screen of Solomon's temple. It was beautiful. You remember David had wanted to build the temple and God says to David, hey, you're not going to build my house. It's going to be your son who builds a house for me, Solomon. So Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, one of the wealthiest men to ever live, one of the most brilliant architects to ever live builds the first temple, and it was gorgeous. It took seven years to build. It was full of cedar, uh, cypress, olive wood. If you walked outside and inside of Solomon's temple, there were elaborate carvings on the walls and the doors. The floors were ornate, and almost every feature of Solomon's temple was overlaid with gold. Can you imagine how magnificent and beautiful that would be? Just totally gold-plated. But more important than that, the thing that made Solomon's temple unique was not merely its beauty. It was the fact that God's presence was tangible in the temple. In fact, you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon dedicates his temple. God does something unique. He shows up and manifests His presence in a unique way. There's an altar, and God sends fire from heaven and lights that altar in a a miraculous way. And then 1 Kings chapter 8 says that at the dedication of the temple, God's glory descended on and in the temple like a cloud. So think about it. You've got fire and cloud. What does that sound like, church? Exodus, right? So in the same way that God was present and manifested His glory with His people coming out of Egypt with a fire and a cloud. Now it's happening again in the temple. Fire from heaven. God's glory 
enshrouding the temple like a cloud. And this is why Solomon's temple is so special, because it is associated with God's presence and his God, God's glory. His presence was weighty and heavy. It was his Shekinah glory. That means his manifested glory in the house of God. Can you imagine that? Now, fast forward, right? Because the only thing that you have known of the temple is this place where God's glory rests and it is heavy. And, and folks, God's glory is contagious. Amen? You, you've heard about this thing happening in Wilmore, Kentucky at an obscure Methodist college, Asbury University, where a group of students stayed after a normal chapel service, a, a, a very run-of-the-mill chapel service. But God did something in the hearts of some students who said, we want to encounter God's presence and we don't want to leave this place. And so students stayed and prayed. And then God began to bring more students and more students. And now you can turn on the news almost any station. You will see thousands of people going there. Why? Because God's glory is contagious. And God's glory was associated with Solomon's temple. Fast forward to 587 BC, the Babylonians destroy the temple. They ransack it, they raise it, burn it to the ground, lead God's people into exile, into Babylon. God finally brings them back. They begin to work and to build. They've neglected it for 16 years. Now they spend about a month working on it, and they're looking around, seeing we've not made much progress, and this is nothing like it used to be. Where's the glory? That's what Haggai asks. Where's the glory? Who among you remembers the former glory of this house? And now it's like nothing in comparison. I'm reminded... If you rewind a little bit to Ezra chapter 3, when the people rebuild the foundation, which would have been about 17 years prior to this moment, they rebuild the foundation and they dedicate it, and there's celebration, but Ezra says that some of the older folks wept. And that's a strange thing, and I've wondered, why are they weeping? I wonder if it wasn't because they are looking at the foundation and saying, this is nothing like it was. This is nothing like the past. The glory of the past was so much greater. And I wonder today if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever felt that way about your own life. That you would say, I remember a time when my walk with God was glorious. I remember a time when I was passionate and sold out for God. And I loved him more than anything. And he just consumed my life. And I remember it was glorious. But it's not that way anymore. And maybe even years have passed. Like in Israel, 16 years of neglect. And maybe you'd be honest enough to say there have been years now since I have experienced God's glory in that way. Where's the glory? Some of you may feel that way, not just personally, but maybe you've, maybe you've thought that or felt that about the church as a whole. Maybe you've just said, man, I remember the glory days. I remember the good old days when it was glorious and the church was full and there was excitement. It seemed like there was revival. And maybe in your mind, you think about the glory days and you think of like the 90s. Or maybe you go further back. You think about the 70s, right? The Jesus revolution. 
Or maybe you go further back. Boy, the 50s was where it was at. God really moved and filled his church with glory in the 50s. Or maybe you're old enough to say the 1850s. I don't, I don't know. But you say there's, there was a day back then when it was glorious. And it doesn't seem to be that way now. And so maybe you, like the Israelites, in a sense, are standing in the ruin and the rubble and the wreckage saying, where's the glory? Why isn't it as glorious now in the church or in my life as it used to be? Well, in the midst of that spiritual despondency and discouragement, God provides encouragement for the task by giving Haggai a second message. So that's what you see in verses 4 and 5. There's been this problem, right? The glory is not as great as it used to be. So now verses 4 and 5, Haggai is going to bring a message, and he's going to bring a priority. Okay, that's what you see in verses 4 and 5. A priority. If you stand in the ruin and the rubble rubble of a life that used to be glorious, and you wonder, what happened? Or maybe you've not made the spiritual progress that you had hoped. What should you do? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Even so... Be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work. For I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Fear not. Don't be afraid, right? The people have been intimidated by the surrounding nation. They've been fearful. Notice the three commands. Be strong. Work. Don't be afraid. That's the priority that Haggai gives to the people. Be strong, he says it three times. Be strong, he says it to the governor, to the chief priest, and to the people. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Work. Don't be afraid. Now, those are important words. They're important for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that those words are important is because they are old words, they are ancient words. 400 years prior to Haggai chapter 2, these words show up in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 20 when David speaks to Solomon about building the first temple. This is what he says. Let's read it together. Then David said to his son Solomon, what does it say there, church? Be strong and courageous and do the what? The work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is what? With you. He won't leave you. Or abandon you until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. You see here, 520 BC, the people have begun to rebuild. They're discouraged. They've not made much progress. You know what Haggai does? He just picks up the words of Scripture. And he reminds them to do what God had already called them to do. He picks up the words that David used to Solomon when Solomon was building the first temple. And he just repeats them. He says... Do what God's people have always been called to do. Be strong. Don't be afraid. Work. And remember that as you work, God's with you. Be strong and don't fear. 
be strong and very courageous. Those should be familiar words to you because they show up in other places in your Bible, don't they? Be strong and very courageous. Where else have you heard that? Joshua. Exactly. Moses, this great leader of the people, dies and hands off the leadership of Israel to Joshua, and Joshua is terrified, rightly so. Can you imagine following in Moses' footsteps? He's terrified. And so what does God say to him? Be strong and very courageous. He repeats it in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and very courageous. You see these words show up before battle. When God sends his people into battle, he will tell them, be strong and don't fear. Boy, these are encouraging words. Encouraging words because here's the reality. When you set about obedience, obedience is terrifying sometimes. Can I get a witness? It's daunting to obey God. Think about our, our missionaries to Ecuador, Steve and Carol. 36 years in Ecuador. That's daunting. It's, obedience is daunting. It's full of opportunities to be afraid. And so God says, I want you to work, but I'm telling you, be strong and do not fear. That tells us that God can strengthen us and God can remove fear. And that's encouraging. When we're called to obey him, he can strengthen us for what he's called us to do and he can remove fear as we obey him. Notice the word right in the middle of that work, work, work. I want you to circle or underline that work. He says, be strong, do not fear and work for I'm with you. Here's what he's saying right there. The people are despondent and discouraged because they're not making the kind of progress they had hoped to make. Haggai just simply says, if you're not happy with where things are, do something about it. Work. If you're standing in the ruin and the rubble and you're not making the progress you thought you should have made, pick up a brick. Get going. Get busy doing what God has told you to do. What he's saying is simply this. If you are frustrated at the amount of spiritual progress that you have made, take the next step. Just take an intentional step of obedience. Go pick up a brick. You're frustrated that the temple's not been rebuilt, that it's still in ruin? Go pick up a brick. Take a step. Take an intentional step to get busy doing what God has already called you to do. Here's the deal. If you're here today and you are discouraged because you've not made the kind of spiritual progress you had hoped at this point in your life, maybe you just need to hear this simple word. You just need to get busy doing what God has already called you to do. There's no secret to the spiritual life. It looks like obedience, doing what God has already called you to do. And if you're not doing what God has already called you to do, take the first step. Pick up a brick. Work. That's how the walls are going to be rebuilt. That's how the temple is going to be rebuilt because God's people are going to do what God has told them to do. They're going to be obedient. They're going to take a step. What would that look like for you today? Is there an intentional step that you can take? You say, I, I feel like there's some rubble that I'm standing in. What would it look like for you to pick up a brick? Maybe it looks like spending some time in the Word. Maybe it looks like spending time in God's presence in prayer. Maybe it looks like just taking a step in to the people of God where you're with other believers who can encourage you in your walk with Christ. I don't know what it looks like for you to pick up a brick. 
But let me just encourage you, take an intentional step. And here's the deal. When you take intentional steps, when you obey God, notice he says, work for I am with you. There seems to be a connection here between the people's obedience and their experience of the presence of God. If you want to experience the presence of God more fully in your life, let me encourage you to take steps of obedience. And in obedience, you'll experience his presence to greater degrees than you did before. Now, let me add a word of clarification here, because if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the reality is you have the presence of God in your life. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Amen? But we're not always aware of it. We don't always sense His presence to the same way, and we're not always, you, you can have the presence of, your, of God in your life, but still be distant from Him. So, let me use the analogy of marriage, Right? When, when, here's, here's the deal. When you enter into a relationship with God, you are in a covenant relationship. You have his presence, period. But you can do some things to cultivate a nearer sense of intimacy. In the same way that in marriage, when Amy and I said, I do, on May 26, 2007, we entered into a covenant relationship. That means she's stuck with me. Thank you, Jesus. We're in that relationship, okay? Nothing... Apart from a divorce, nothing can change that relationship. However, just because we're in covenant relationship doesn't mean that we're going to sense a nearness or a closeness in our relationship. To sense a nearness and a closeness in our relationship, we have to take intentional steps to cultivate intimacy. Things like date night. Can I get a witness? Three of you. All right. Date night. Let me just tell you guys, you need to date your wife more after you get married than you did before you got married. Amen? Why? Because you want to cultivate intimacy, nearness, closeness, friendship. And so Amy and I spend intentional time where we live the kid, leave the kids behind and they're always like, ah, oh, why are we getting left behind? And I have no apologies to them. Like, mama comes first, period. And you get the leftovers. That's just the way it is. So we're going to get flowers from time to time. We're going to take walks from time to time. We're going to go on date night. Intentional steps to cultivate intimacy. It doesn't change the covenant. We're in covenant relationship. But, but I don't want just to be technically in a covenant relationship with my wife. I want to be in a close friendship with my wife. And the same thing is true in our walk with God. The reality is once you come to know Jesus, you're in covenant relationship. You have his presence in your life, but that doesn't mean that you will feel near to him. You may experience a sense of distance. The way to close that gap is to take intentional steps to cultivate intimacy in your walk with God. Pick up a brick. Haggai says, do something about it. Work. Take the next intentional step. That's the priority. Amen? Can you handle one more thing? Okay. Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish preacher, says about this passage that what Haggai is doing would be quite cruel unless he also provided motivation for them to do what he's called them to do. Here's what he means. If you have a people who are discouraged and despondent because they're not much, making much progress and a prophet walks up and says, well, then just work. That's kind of discouraging. It's kind of crushing. It's like, well, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to work. McLaren says it's like unkind to tell people who are trying to work to work unless you provide motivation for it. 
And wouldn't you know that's exactly what Haggai does in verses 5 through 9. He provides a motivation for them to be strong, work, and not be afraid. And he, he does that by giving three promises. Okay, so here's the last, last part of the sermon, verses 5 through 9. Just notice some promises that God makes to his people as they set about this task of obedience. Number one, the first promise he makes is the promise of his presence. You saw it in verses four and five. He says, work, why? See it in verse four? For I am with you. Isn't that good? What does Emmanuel mean? You remember we we call Jesus Emmanuel. It means God with us. Here he says, work, why? For I am with you. And then he says in verse five, this is the promise that I made when you came out of Egypt. My spirit is present among you. Let's just talk about that for a second. My spirit is present among you. I love the way that this reads in Hebrew. Literally, if you translated this literally, Haggai is saying, God's spirit is standing among you. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit walked into this room and stood right in the middle of the room? I think a bunch of Baptists would become a bunch of charismatics. If the Holy Spirit of God stood in, in the middle of us, that's exactly what Haggai 2.5 is saying the Holy Spirit does. If you are God's people, the Spirit is standing among you. God's Spirit himself. By the way, if you think there's no Trinity in the Old Testament, look at Haggai chapter 2. Here's the Holy Spirit of God standing in the midst of God's people. And here's the deal. If you're, if you're trying to rebuild the temple and you're really discouraged because you've not made much progress, it would be tempting to say, well, if we only had Solomon here, then he could help us build this thing. Or if we only had David, or if we only had Moses, if we only had these great leaders of the past, then maybe we would be making more progress. And God is saying, listen, you may not have Moses or David or Solomon, but you've got me. And if you've got me, you've got everything you need. My spirit is literally standing among you. And you may not see the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean the spirit is not there. You might not be aware or recognize God's presence, but that's not a problem with God. That's our problem because we get so distracted on other things. Listen, revival may just be simply coming to an awareness of the presence of God. Doesn't mean that God wasn't present with you. It just means that you are coming to be aware of his presence. And let me just tell you something, because we, we've been watching what's been happening in Asbury up in, in, in Kentucky, and I just want to tell you, there have been a lot of people who've been going up to Kentucky because they want to experience the presence of God, and that's great. Let me just give you a word of encouragement. If you don't have the ability to fly to Kentucky to experience the presence of God, you're not going to miss out on God. There is like a real fear of missing out in our culture. And there's a sense in which people, some people have even said, like, I don't want to miss God. I'm flying up to Kentucky to be in that place. You're not going to miss God because God is present amongst his people. You may not be aware of it, and that's why we need reviving. We need to be woken up to the presence of God in our life. But that doesn't mean it's because God is not here. You're not going to miss out on God. Listen to what Jesus says. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be what? filled. That means you have as much of God as you want. And that is both an indictment and an encouragement. It's an indictment because if I have as much of God as I want and I don't have much, that's because I don't want him much. 
But it's also an encouragement. If I want him more, he'll fill me. If I want more of God, I can get more of God. Amen? And here's the deal. Revival happens not when you seek revival. Revival happens when you seek God. And here in Haggai chapter 2, God says, my spirit is present among you. Allow that to motivate you. And notice, by the way, he points to the past. He says, this promise is the promise I made when you came out of Egypt. A thousand years before. Notice what God is doing. He's saying, hey, you remember how I was present with you when, I, when you came out of Egypt? Guess what? I'm still here. I was faithful to you then. I'll be faithful to you now. I was at work amongst you then. Maybe you say, man, I remember the glory days of the church back in the 70s and the Jesus revolution. Guess what? He's still present amongst his people. And the God who was faithful to his people in the Exodus and faithful to people in the Jesus revolution and even further back, the first great awakening is the same God who is present among his people today. And so allow that to motivate your obedience. All right, I'm preaching now. Let me give you the second promise. Not only the promise of his presence, but the promise of his glory. The question of the chapter is, where is the glory? Seems like there's no glory associated with this temple. Look at the promise God makes, verses 6 through 9. For the Lord of armies says this, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in. Notice that. The treasures of all the nations come in. And say this together, and I will what? Fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me, right? The silver and gold of the nations. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. What a promise. The people are frustrated. We're in ruin and rubble. Where's the glory? God makes a promise. There's coming a day when I will fill my house with glory and the final glory will be greater than the former glory. You say, how does that happen? Well, it happens at two levels. There's an immediate fulfillment of this promise, and there's a future fulfillment, actually future fulfillments of this promise. The immediate fulfillment of this promise, God says, I'm going to shake the nations, and their silver and gold will come in, and I'll fill the house with glory. Do you know that that actually happened? In this generation, God makes the promise to the people. Ezra chapter 6 King Darius, who's a Persian pagan king, gives an edict that whatever monetary cost is associated with rebuilding the temple, the Persians will pay for it, which is exactly what they do. The silver and the gold of the nations come in, and the Persians, through tax revenue, pay for the reconstruction of the temple. Isn't that amazing? God made a promise. God kept a promise. But that wasn't the only fulfillment of that promise. God says, I will fill my house with glory, and the, greater, the, the, the future house will be greater, greater glory than the former glory. When did that happen? It happened when a 12-year-old Jewish boy left his parents, and they're looking for him, don't know where he is, he's in the temple, and he's having conversations about his father's business. And in that moment, the glory of God in the person of the Son of God filled the house. 
But then he said confusing things. He said things like this. Something greater than the temple is here. And he says weird things that the disciples can't comprehend. He says, um, hey, tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. That makes no sense. It takes years to rebuild the temple. How do you tear down the temple, rebuild it in three days? <clears throat> but the gospel writers clue us in in what he's talking about. He's not talking about the house, the building, right? What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is saying there's a sense in which not only Jesus was in the temple, but Jesus was the temple. And the greater glory was found not in a building of brick and stone, but in a person, Jesus. That's the greater glory. But that's not it. That's not all. There's more, folks. Jesus forms a redeemed people called the church. And wouldn't you know that the language that the New Testament authors begin to use to describe the people of God is temple language? Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, you are living stones in the temple. He's building you into a dwelling place for the Spirit. You want to know what the greater glory looks like? Look around. It looks like a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You know, that's not all. There's a future fulfillment. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, I I'm, I'm, promise I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm landing the plane. But I won't I want, I want you to miss this. Look at the screen, Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and following. I, this is John speaking of the new heavens and new earth. Is there going to be a temple there? Look what he says. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamb. Now watch this. This is going to blow your mind. Look at the next verse. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does Haggai chapter 2 say? I'll shake the nations and the nations will bring their treasures and I will fill the house with glory. That's when it gets fulfilled. Revelation chapter 21, the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. The glory of God illuminates it. There's no temple because God himself is the temple. Folks, that's the greater glory. Amen? And let that motivate your obedience. The last thing he says, I'm done. Last verse, nine, the third promise. God's peace. I will provide peace in this place. You've got my presence. You'll get my glory. And there's coming a day when I will bring peace in this place. How does it happen? It happens, right? Peace, shalom. It's human flourishing. It's life as God intended it to be lived. How does it happen? How does God provide peace in that place? He does it by sending a priest, but not like the Old Testament priests. He sends a great high priest who doesn't come to offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he comes to offer his own blood as both priest and sacrifice to atone for our sins once for all. 
so that sinful humanity can be at peace with holy God. And when he does that, you remember there's something that happens in the temple? What happens when Jesus is dying on the cross? What's happening in the temple? A veil ripping top to bottom, symbolizing the fact that the place where you would meet God would no longer be a place but in a person. A person who is priest and sacrifice and temple. That's how we have peace with God. Ephesians 2 says, Christ is our peace. Let that motivate your obedience. Let's bow together. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We just stand today in awe of who you are because you are glorious. Lord, and we say thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promises, promises that you are with us, that you are bringing greater glory than we could imagine. Thank you for the promise of peace accomplished through Jesus. Lord, I pray for our church that we would be busy doing what you've called us to do. Not to earn your favor, but because we have it in Christ. Lord, we want it to be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.